you have your Bibles, I'd love to encourage you to join me in Galatians chapter 5. We have been studying the fruit of the Spirit, and this morning we reach the last aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, that is temperance. Carries with it the idea of self-control, of controlling our fleshly impulses. Here is the reality that all of us have to come to grips with. Our innate desires, our natural desires are still with us. We will still face, confront, carnal, fleshly, old man impulses. And it is a genuine battle. It's a struggle. Our bodies want, our minds want, and the Spirit says, hold off. And there is a conflict. The Apostle Paul calls it a struggle. It's a war in our members. And this morning, I wanted to set the tone with that just so you grasp in a humorous spot how innately this struggle is yours and it is mine. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Temperance is a word that you may not use often. It is the idea of self-control. In fact, the Greek word that is translated there, temperance, is the combination of two words, in, E-N, kratos. Kratos communicates strength. Power, might, dominion, self-control, in dominion of, in control. In fact, we have pulled that into the English language and we have a democratic society, a people-powered, a theocratic, which is God-powered, autocratic, self-powered. We have the idea of in kratos, in control, in control of our impulses, in Proverbs 25, 28, Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, spoke directly to this when he said, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls, indicating that we must engage in ruling our spirits. Some of us are given to temper tantrums. Some of us are given to lustful thoughts. Some of us are given to gossip. There's so many things I could list. The reality is that we must begin to exercise dominion over our natural impulses. Self-control. Self-control implies a divided self. Self-control implies there's a struggle between the new man and the old man. Our old man produces desires that we must be in control of. Jesus was speaking in Luke 9 and he said it very pointedly. He said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily, our quote-unquote self produces desires that have to be denied or controlled. Paul depicts it very plainly. He says believers have to strive like professional athletes 
to overcome this. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, he said, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. In every area of your life, you practice self-control. He'll come back in verse 27 and say of himself, I keep it under subjection, my body. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. I, Paul says, work to bring my body's desires and my carnal impulses into subjection. To bring those wild hairs under control. Self-control. Temperance. Saying no to sinful desires, even when it hurts. Admittedly, self-control is not a popular topic in our society. One wrote this. In our society, any insistence upon self-discipline is largely resisted. Even among many Christians, legalism, they cry, defending their rights of Christian liberty. These free-spirited believers maintain that discipline restricts their freedom in Christ, binding them in a spiritual straitjacket. Believers and unbelievers despise this idea of temperance. The ancient Stoics took that Greek word and they spoke highly of an individual who by sheer willpower could bring into subjection those carnal desires. When tempted by evil, they stood up against it. But the New Testament is not asking us to do something in our own willpower. The New Testament elevates it as Paul does here in this fruit of the Spirit and refers to the Holy Spirit empowering us to be able to voluntarily abstain even when tempted by evil. The opposite of a self-controlled life is a self-indulged life. And if you want to know what a self-indulged life looks like, take a look at the world in which we live. Paul actually, just prior to listing the fruit of the Spirit, tells us what it looks like when people indulge their carnal appetite. He calls it the works of the flesh. And he says, here they are, adultery. Well, that's not rampant. Fornication. Uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and if that's not a good enough list, and such like. He says the self-indulged lifestyle is easy to see. It produces the works of the flesh and he lists them for us. And then he comes back and says, but here's the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit has this aspect to it. Temperance, self-control, binding down those wild impulses of our natural self. How do I not yield to the flesh? By the control of the Holy Spirit. One wrote this, growth in personal holiness is largely determined by our progress in self-discipline. The question is this for you and for me, who's in control? The question for you and for me, if we wanted to make it a what, what's in control? Is it the old man or is it the new man? Is it our carnal desires or is it the Holy Spirit? Who's in control this week as you enter into it? You will make hundreds of decisions. 
You will encounter new situations. You will interact with new people. New problems arise and old ones will revisit. And the question you must answer all the way is who's in control? Who's in charge as I work through this? The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.5, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Temperate in all things, every single thought, errant or planned, brought into subjection to Jesus Christ. Every word that you speak this week is going to be directed by a carnal or a spiritual impulse. Every thought that you have must be brought into subjection. That's why Paul says, I keep under my body. That's very vivid imagery. I bring it into subjection. He communicates, I like a pugilist, like a boxer, I bring my body into subjection. Every single thought I pull down into subjection to Jesus Christ. This is in every facet of our lives. This is a major assignment. In fact, if you meditate on it, it's somewhat overwhelming who's in charge. Has every word that you spoke this week been righteous? Every thought that you had this week been brought into subjection to holiness? Every deed, every action that you carried out, the reality is all of us find that we are confronted by this scripture. Who's in control? What does temperance mean for me? I think if we're going to really communicate this, I have to be careful to teach from the Bible what temperance is not. We have to understand what it is not. One author stated this, temperance is not just say no. The problem is with the word just there. You don't just say no, you say no in a certain way. You say no by faith in the superior power and pleasure of Christ. As I teach on temperance, I am not pushing you to an ascetic lifestyle. As I teach temperance, I am not talking about mere deprivation. We are not talking about an act of will or a work of the flesh. We are talking about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's integral for our understanding that temperance is a gift. It's a fruit of the Spirit, not something that we have within us. Yet again, one said, many today falsely assume that they can simply will themselves to be whatever they want to be. This mindless mantra is found in today's self-help movement and prosperity gospel chanting what the mind can conceive, the will can accomplish. The ability of self-discipline, they claim, is within us. And all of us can discipline ourselves to some degree. All of us can deprive ourselves to some degree, but this is not producing the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if we're really going to understand this, we're going to have to get our theological shovels out and we're going to have to dig a little bit and that's uncomfortable, right? We're going to have to labor a little bit in the Word of God to make sure that we have the theological underpinnings to build the structure practically of what this means for us. So I begin by saying every Christian, that means you and that means me, is responsible to pursue holiness, 
That is your responsibility and mine. Pursue holiness. Yet, God has to work within me to produce godliness. I cannot do anything in my flesh and please God. I cannot do anything of my own will and convert it into righteousness. God must work that within me. Growing in my faith and my walk with Christ. It's up to God to make me grow. Is it up to God or is it up to me? There's a tension that exists. So I have to strive like a professional athlete, but God has to produce it within me. So which is it, Pastor? Do we all move away, put on monk robes and shave our heads, and deprive ourselves of pleasurable things so that God can be happy, or does God do the work within us? The answer is, It sounds really bad, but it's kind of both. It's a little bit of both. In a nutshell, understanding spiritual growth this way. The growth of a believer requires your and my diligent effort. can never happen without it. But your diligent effort must be enabled by the power of God, and it can't happen without that either. Paul said this in Philippians 2. We have to grasp this. Philippians 2.13, he said, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The word worketh there in the Greek is energeo. It's, it's God who energizes us in the will and the doing that actually pleases him. God empowers us to do his work. When our work is empowered by his work, our work then becomes an expression of what he is doing in us. Only God can produce temperance, as we see it in Galatians 5.23. Only God can do that. I can't. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Yet Paul says this in Colossians 1, verse 29. Whereunto I also labor striving. If you took the word also and just blocked it out in your mind, he says, I labor striving. I put effort out there. I'm laboring and I'm striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. You see this tension lived out within scripture. It's a seeming paradox. We're commanded to work outwardly, but now we're told that we work outwardly as a result of God working inwardly. God deserves all the credit. Paul is laboring, Paul is striving, and yet he does so by the power of God, not his own. He is striving, yet he is energized by the power of God, both to will, to want it, and to do, to carry it out. We must strive, yes, but not by our might. Let me back it up with another verse, Romans 8, 13. For if I, if ye, I'm sorry, live after the flesh, ye shall die. Get this, but if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. I have carnal appetites. I have a draw. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That's what the Bible tells us. We are going to confront the temptation of evil. Innately, we are drawn to it. We have carnal impulses. We are given to the old man, yet as believers, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
And what he has just said here is, I, through the Spirit, have to mortify the deeds of the flesh. That's a strong word. I have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. I have to slaughter the deeds of the flesh. That is violent activity. I strive, he says. I labor through the Spirit. I have to mortify the deeds. That's vivid language. I keep under my body. I bring it into subjection. He is communicating to us that there is some pursuing of holiness that we must do. At times, we have to say no. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we abstain from capitulating to evil. We must strive, yes, but not by our own might. Why? Jesus said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. A vine merely bears fruit. That's what we are as a branch. We're bearing fruit. It's created temperance by the Holy Spirit. Self-control is never self-generated. It's not part of us. It's a work of grace within us. Though we're active in it, we simply bear the fruit of temperance, self-discipline. This is a hinge on which a lot of things turn. Because it is easy for us to imagine that if we will simply deprive ourselves and externally modify our behavior in that modification and in that deprivation, we are making God happy. We're bringing our best, as it were, to God and we're offering it up to Him. Cain and Abel, back in Genesis, had a similar tension. Cain murders Abel because God accepted his gift, which was according to faith and obedience. Cain brought to God what he thought was his best. It was the work of his own hands. Get this, because this is deep and this is where the tension lies. Self-righteousness is not pleasing to God. The Pharisees excelled at self-deprivation and external modification in order to appease the wrath of God, which can only be appeased in the death and shed blood of Jesus Christ. No work of the flesh can please God. No work of the flesh is deemed righteous. No work of the flesh is holiness. It must be the work of God. In me, Paul said, that is in my flesh dwelleth no Good thing. Jesus again saying that he is the vine, telling us without him we can do nothing. In our own willpower, we can't do anything that pleases God. Only by grace, only by yielding to the Holy Spirit can we win or exercise self-control in our ongoing warfare against sin. I think this enlightens us to Philippians 4.13. I think this verse is probably abused or misused. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Jesus says in John 15.5, without me you can do nothing. Then Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. In effect, that's saying the same thing. Now what that means is this, we have to yield to the Holy Spirit. Many people have been sold or have been taught 
that they have to align themselves and their lifestyle with some guru or some teacher or some enigmatic personality who presses them, motivating guilt or fear or some other thing to get them to align. And here we're free from that, yet we are not free to do whatever we want. We yield to the Spirit who helps us be temperate in all things. Free in the Spirit. There are going to be a lot of people who stand before God and offer works that according to the New Testament are going to be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble because they are not fruit of the Spirit. Rather, it is all done in the flesh. This is a deep topic to try to understand. I can do all things, even even self-discipline, through Christ which strengtheneth me. Christ on the inside, Holy Spirit indwelling us. He will empower us to abandon to him everything that we are not. And everything that we cannot do for his strength alone, walk in the spirit. The question in all of this, the fruit of the spirit is, are you walking in the spirit? Well, how do I know if I'm walking in the spirit? Are you yielding to the spirit? The Bible tells us about this. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So many times as believers, as dads, as moms, as, as workers, we find ourselves at a crossroads. I've got a decision to make. I've got an emotion to process. I've, I've got a thought to filter. I'm standing at a crossroads. I am ultimately yielding. Am I consistently yielding to sin, which leads unto death, or am I yielding unto obedience, which offers me righteousness? I do a lot of yielding. Now, it's an ugly thing to think about, but have you ever chosen willfully to sin? Now, look, man, there have been times where I feel like sin has slipped up on me. I've just blown up at somebody, and I think, well, didn't put a lot of forethought into that. There have been other times where I have engaged sin, aware of temptation, and have willfully chosen to satiate the desire of my flesh. It's a disgusting reality. I'm yielding. Are you walking in the Spirit? How can I know? Are you in the Word? It's not just are you in the word, are you obeying the word that you are in? Are you under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Are you controlled? The self can never produce temperance. Only as we live in the Holy Spirit's control can we live self-controlled lives. Temperance is not an ascetic lifestyle. Temperance is not deprivation. Temperance is a fruit of the Spirit. As I yield to the influence of the Spirit, you say, man, if I'd have thought this was going to be a seminary lesson, I'd have skipped this week. We're tackling sanctification in like 12 minutes. That's pretty, pretty concise. That's what temperance is not. But I have to walk in temperance. I have to exercise self-control. If, if I were to boil it down to one word, Jesus used it in Luke 9, 23 when he said, deny yourself. If any man's going to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. There's three things there. Deny himself. Now, be careful. It is not a deprivation thing. Let me also say this verse is not about salvation. 
This is not about attaining salvation. It's about consecration. It's separation in action. This is not how to become a believer. We don't carry this out to become a believer. This is how to live like a believer lives, deny ourselves. This is discipleship. Now again, he's not saying deprive yourself of something good. Go starve yourself. Go find a temple somewhere where you can put on a robe, shave your head, and never speak another word. Not asceticism, not not a deprivation of good things. He means deny yourself, put yourself last. Release, not good desires, not good things, but self-centered desires, a self-centered life. Deny yourself. And that's where we come back to this great tension. Am I separated because my separation earns me merit with other people? Am I separated because in my separation I am trying to appease a holy God? Or is my separation a fruit of the Spirit working in me? And we'll get there in just a moment. Let him take up his cross. Jesus doesn't say, take up my cross. He says, take up your cross, his cross, daily. This has to be a daily habit. When you took up a cross, that was very vivid imagery. Because to have a cross in the first century, I'm communicating I am no longer in charge of my destiny. The destiny of my life is in someone else's hands. In fact, I no longer control my own life. My life itself is in someone else's hands. And Jesus says, put yourself last, deny yourself, Take up your cross daily. This must be a daily thing where you acknowledge he is in control. My ambitions, my desires, my goals, my aims, my impulses are not mine. They are his. My life and the outcome of it is not mine. I surrender. And Jesus says, and follow me. Very, very closely. That's what that word implies. Get behind him as your master teacher and go where he goes. Turn where he turns. Stop where he stops. Run where he runs. Walk where he walks. That is the yielding that we are talking about. Now, something very interesting happens in Titus chapter 2. Jesus says, if you want to walk in temperance, deny yourself... Take up your cross daily and follow me. Surrender completely to me. Now, how am I going to know what is a sinful desire and what's an okay desire? How do I distinguish between the two? Well, some would say, merely listen to me. I will tell you what is right and I will tell you what is wrong. What a horrible way to live. Now, I kind of lived that way as a kid. Did you? My parents told me what was okay and what was not okay. My parents told me when to sit and when to stand and where to go and when things were bad and when things weren't bad. That was when I was a child. But as a believer, I can't pastor you like you're a bunch of children and I can't demand that you give in to my desires and my impulses. I have to have you, like me, surrender to the Spirit. So how does this work? Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. You'll note them here. Paul's very clear. He's writing to Titus and he says, For the grace of God... That bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now here comes something important. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God, which is amplified, it's the grace of God that brings salvation, hath appeared unto all men. But what does the grace of God do? It teaches us. What does it teach us? That denying ungodliness 
and worldly lusts, here's how we should rather live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So if we just took Titus 2, 11, and 12, and I asked you, who is the teacher in Titus 2 and 11? It would be the grace of God. What is the grace of God's content? He's teaching me to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. He's teaching me temperance. And he's teaching me rather to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So it's not pastor. It's not a guru. It's not somebody who's in charge of your every decision. It's the grace of God which teaches you what to deny and what to employ. What to deny and how to live. Teaching in that verse is important. It's even a little bit different. It's not the teaching that we would typically see. It's the teaching that gives us our understanding pedagogy. It's an informal kind of teaching. It's not a classroom setting, sit in a chair and listen to me teach. It is an everyday walk through life, instant by instant teaching even implying, like teaching a child, we would use the term conviction. Now let's just pause for a second and ask yourself this very practically. Has there ever been something you were engaged in and you felt a prick on the inside and you thought, I probably shouldn't be doing this? Now most of you are like, never happens. I'm 10 for 10, dude. I probably should be pastoring my own church. I'm 10 for 10. You ever said something and immediately you thought, wish I could have that back. I call that Sunday morning at 9.45 and then again at 11. Wish I could have that back. You ever had that thought course through and you think, how am I, what, where did that come from? It is the grace of God which teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and rather live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It is conviction. The grace of God is my teacher. The grace of God tells me what I should and should not do. It is temperance being produced in me. It's not me saying, hey, listen, now here's where we're all going to sit, and here's what we're all going to do, and here's how we're all going to look, and here's how we're all going to speak, and you're going to do it my way and on my timing. It is the grace of God which is the teacher. That's why this is a hinge on which a whole lot of stuff turns and you surrender a lot of authority if you tell people, look, I'm not gonna guilt you and I'm not gonna be a fear monger. I'm gonna tell you, let the grace of God be your teacher. If you missed a lesson yesterday, it's fine. He'll be back today. He'll teach you what to say no to and what to say yes to. Grace is teaching us to deny, to refuse, to renounce, to disown worldly lusts. The fruit of the Spirit is, is there to teach us. Paul expands on this in Ephesians 4. He says this, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth not walk as other Gentiles walk. Gen- that, that's terminology there that's communicating like the world. Don't walk like the world. In the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. They're unsaved. Don't look like the unsaved who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. They live like that. They give in to the flesh, but ye have not so learned Christ. Again, we've been taught not by some guru, but by the grace of God, by Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. What has he taught us? 
To put off concerning the former conversation, the former lifestyle of the old man, the unsaved, the carnal, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's what he's teaching us. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. Anybody who tells you you can't discern for yourself is asking you to produce a work of the flesh. That's not pleasing to God. The grace of God teaches us. We've been taught in Christ to renounce worldly lust, but we must strive and yield. Listen, God's not going to open your Bible, take your neck, and make you read it. He's not going to walk into your room and pull you out of bed, get you in the car, and drive you to volunteer at the church. He's not going to do it. Now, sometimes I wish he would. He's not going to pry open your wallet, reach in and take money out and stick it in the offering box. But man would be a great church if he did. God's not going to make you stay locked in when the preacher's talking about sanctification for way too long. He's not going to coerce you. He's not, you've got to strive. You've got to strive like a professional athlete. You've got to work at it, and the Holy Spirit energizes, does the work inside of you and inside of me. He is working. It's not me with sheer willpower. It's a fact of life. This is a tension. That's why we started with little marshmallows. You see it's natural to us. You're depriving me of something that I want now. Even though you're telling me something better is down the line, we watch the tension and we think, man, isn't that funny with marshmallows? It still exists now. The temptation's just different. You're constantly pulled by that old man and by that new man. It's not a passive engagement. We must work. I referenced this earlier and I'm almost done. Paul compared the self-discipline required in Christian living to an athlete training for and competing in the ancient athletic games. He said again, let me reference, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. We have something waiting for us. It's an incorruptible crown in eternity. It's, it's the presence of God. That's waiting for us. So here and now, we've got to be temperate in all things. Every single thing. I love what one said. He said this, liberties are largely for spectators, not a champion athlete. A champion athlete must pursue proper diet, sufficient rest, carry out arduous drills. Every area of his life must be brought under control if he's ever going to be a champion athlete. But what we have is a church, not here, believers at large, who are not Champion athletes, they're spectators because they demand liberties. If I had to go right now and run a marathon and you told me I had to do it, I'm going to put it out there, in under four and a half hours, I would say, uh, probably not going to happen. My knees probably aren't going to make it that long. I am going to walk. I'm going to be angry at like mile three. I'm going to use most of my oxygen saying bad things about you. I don't want any hills in it. I can't make it. But if you gave me time, 
and you gave me a trainer who was top-notch, I could probably deliver if I adapted my life and I listened to my trainer with the goal of running that in under four and a half hours. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you want to be a champion, you must be tempered in all things. If you are a mere spectator, you never have to try because you're never in the race. You're not on the track and you're not in the arena. Go on demanding your liberties and satiating whatever you want. Just don't expect to also win the race. Don't expect to strive for the mastery. That's why he said, I run not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. An undisciplined fighter throws wild punches. An undisciplined believer suffers great defeats. But a believer living with self-control, fighting against sin, bringing their body under subjection, exercising their self rather unto godliness, resisting, empowered by the Holy Spirit, succeeds. It's, it's a tension. It's a conundrum, a seeming one. Let me finish by saying this. This kind of self-discipline, one wrote, is a rebuke to half-hearted Christians who do little to train for spiritual victory. They're out-of-shape believers with flabby faith. They're spiritual couch potatoes with bulging spiritual waistlines. Their lifestyle is self-indulgent due to their lack of self-control. That hits hard. That's confrontational. Fruits of the Spirit should not be as confrontational, especially when you're tackling temperance until you really understand what's communicated. I'm yielding. In the next 15 minutes, I will be at a crossroads. You know, sometimes I'm just not in the mood for it. And I got to yield, whether I'm yielding to sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness, whether I'm yielding to the Spirit or to the old man. What am I giving into? Am I even striving for the mastery? Am I tempered in all things or do I just live at the whims of my flesh? The question is, who's in charge? Temperance is necessary. If you are walking in the Spirit, it will be visible in your self-control. Would you please, for just a moment, bow your heads, close your eyes. I know that we have covered an awful lot. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.